0: There's times when you just like to bottle that and take it with you through the rest of the week, isn't there? Yeah. Jesus told us there's a specific way to uh, be in that place where we're feeling that presence of God on a regular basis, like 24-7, but the cost for it is extraordinarily high, and he speaks about it in Mark chapter 8. That ability to know that you know that you know that you're in the place where God's um, palpable, where you feel that God encounter, comes at such a high cost that many people say, "Mm, I'm not sure I've ever gone there. Let me show you what Mark chapter 8 says. This is Jesus speaking, and he said this about surrendering. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. See, the opposite of denying yourself is hanging on, right? Hanging on to things that we hold precious, things that we almost keep as a pet, things that maybe God's been pushing on our heart about surrendering up to him. And it's really hard to be in that place where you feel like you're in a God encounter moment 24-7 when you've got some things from your old life that are pulling you back and weighing you down, kind of like baggage. So this morning's all about the art of surrender. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 19. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn there. And in Acts chapter 19, we get to see this story unfold. It's it's kind of a big chunk, so we're going to take it in big chunks and move through it rather quickly. But go ahead and turn there if you have a Bible. If you didn't bring one with you, grab one out of the rack around you. And if you don't own one, there's free Bibles in the back. Be sure and grab one this morning when you leave. But Acts chapter 19 is going to help us to understand this art of surrender. Before we go into the story, I want to pray with you, okay? I want to pray with you about maybe what God's laying on in your heart right now, in this very moment, something that you know that you're holding on to, that you haven't yet surrendered to him. Let me pray with you before we step into the text. Father, we recognize that our hearts are in a place where we've been prepared through worship, and we recognize the presence of your Holy Spirit in this place. It's palpable. We can feel it but we want to go to that place father where we recognize it goes beyond sunday morning and that we we carry the presence of the holy spirit with us in such a worshipful attitude that it's just there all the time we're asking for something supernatural father that goes beyond human ability And so I'm asking on behalf of each of us that you meet us right at the point of the need that we have in this moment. You know the hearts of every single individual sitting in this auditorium, and you know what things we might be reserving, things that we're holding back from you that we haven't offered up to you, things that we have not yet denied. So God, I ask that you would do some surgery on our heart, and through the midst of this teaching, looking at Acts 19, that you would teach us, guide us through the power of your Holy Spirit, whom we say we're surrendered to. It's in Jesus' name we ask for this. Amen. So we're coming into the home stretch. We've been in the book of Acts, if you're new at New Hope, since February, right? This is like week 34. And uh, this this final stretch that we're coming into now is gonna move very quickly because it's very much a narrative form, story form. And chapter 19 is no exception to that. This, This final section, we're going to see how purposeful and how intentional these guys are about advancing the kingdom. It's 56 AD. Paul has determined in his mind that he's going to go back to Jerusalem but some things interrupt him and stop him from going back so we're going to see when he gets back to Jerusalem he's going to get arrested not today but that's coming up and then he's going to spend some time in prison and he's going to eventually going to get shipped off to Rome and he's going to be in prison there and uh, he loses his life in Rome but that's getting ahead of myself that's not where we're going today let's go to verse 21 of chapter 19 this is where we left off last week now after these things were finished Paul purposed in the spirits; he's very intentional, he's purposing in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So he's hanging out in Ephesus. Paul has made a major decision. And his decision is that he's gonna wrap up his activity and he's going to go further west, and he wants to end up in Rome. Ultimately, he wants to see himself in Spain, and it's not as a tourist. He's not going there on vacation. He wants to advance the kingdom. If you read Romans 15, you find that this is just a, a passion of his to make his way all the way to Spain and take the gospel there. Look with me on the screen at Romans 15, 22. He says, I have had for many years a longing to come to you. He's talking to the people in Rome. Whenever I go to Spain, but before he can do any of that, He's gotta go back to Jerusalem. And we're not told why. We're looking at the back of book of Acts and wondering, why does he need to go back to Jerusalem? Every time he goes there, he gets in trouble. And the people wanna kill him. There's riots that take place. Well, it's, we find out by looking at Romans 15 that he's going there because he has this incredible heart for the people who are starving there. The church in Jerusalem is being persecuted. And successfully, the people who live in Jerusalem who are not Christians, are pushing back against Christians and they're shutting them out economically. And so they can't make trade. They can't buy and sell the way that they used to before they professed Christ. And literally, the church in Jerusalem is uh, full of very, very poor people. So Paul's going to make his way around to all the Gentile churches that he launched. He's going to collect an offering so he can take it back and help them. Now, Jesus' half-brother James is the pastor of that church in Jerusalem. And the reason you find out that he writes what he does in James 2 is because he's overseeing this big group of Christians in Jerusalem who are literally without food and clothing. Look with me on the screen at what James said. James chapter 2, verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? So to meet the need, Paul takes up this offering and he begins making his way back to Jerusalem but before he can go something stops him you find that in verse 23 of chapter 19. it says about that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way the way, if you haven't heard it before, is an ancient title for Christians. Before they were called Christians, we were called people of the way. So Paul has put this stop in his travel plans temporarily, and he tells us why when we go to 1 Corinthians 16. He says there's something that has popped up. Look with me on the screen. I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of, for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And the adversaries are about to make themselves known There's going to be a riot. You're going to see that as we go into this story. A riot is about to erupt for this reason and this reason alone. The message of the cross is blanketing the city of a quarter million people. Some people have gone to the place where they have denied themselves and picked up their cross and decided to follow Jesus on such a scale that it has rocked the economic world of Asia Minor. Let's go back into the story, verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. So Demetrius is a businessman, right? And he's got this business making shrines of the goddess Artemis, small g, and of the temple where they go to worship, which is in Ephesus, not talking about the Jewish temple. So if you look on the screen, what you're gonna see is one of the shrines, an example of what the silversmiths made at this period of time. And these things were coated in silver. Uh, Archeologists have found these all over the region where Artemis was worshiped at in the city of Ephesus. They, They keep unearthing them. Well, that's not the only thing they made. The other thing they made were little miniature versions of the temple that they saw when they were in Ephesus. And so what you see on the screen also is a coin. And this coin has a picture of Diana or also known as Artemis. She's the goddess that they worship. They actually put the image of the goddess on their money and exchanged it when they went to the temple. That's how they bought and sold food. Well, this is the very thing that's being threatened because this is how these individuals make their living. Around this temple is a swarm of tradespeople. Think of a beehive. And it's so active with individuals coming and going that it begins to have an impact upon society. Um, Just imagine this, this. This temple is so big, bigger than a football field, wider than a football field, And so many thousands of people stream in and out, exchanging their coins and buying these silversmith idol items that this temple becomes really, really wealthy. And kings of other countries and leaders of other cities begin putting on deposit in the temple, their holdings, and they treat this Ephesian temple as though it's a bank. Look with me on the screen at this particular quote from Dr. Polhill. He's a historian that studied this area. He said, economics and religion were closely bound. The temple received lavish votive offerings from the devotees of the mother goddess. In fact, so wealthy was it that it became the principal financial institution of Asia, receiving deposits and making loans. So you're talking about something that's the hub of the economic life of Asia Minor. So when we're told in verse 24 this this individual, Demetrius, is bringing in no little business. He's a very, very prominent businessman, and his trade is really lucrative, right? Now, if you're the guy who's on Mackinac Island and you own the only fudge shop on Mackinac Island, you're doing pretty good, right? Okay. So this guy has literally got a captive audience. People are coming to Ephesus on vacation. they are tourists who are spending all their money there on vacation, And then you've got the people who live in Asia Minor who come there and worship at this temple regularly. They're looking for the guy who's selling the fudge because they're on vacation. That's Demetrius. This is the guy who's got the lead over this silver business. That's why he's pulling all these individuals together. Vacationers flock to the city. So what you're talking about is huge cash flow. This is really putting a damper on his wallet. So he's freaking out about the message of the cross. Because the message of the cross, the spread of Christianity means the rejection of idols. So Demetrius gathers together all of the silversmiths from this area and we get the inside scoop from verse 25 about what his real concern is. It's not the worship of Diana. It's not the worship of the idol. He says, you know, our prosperity depends upon this. Here's what's going on. The gospel is advancing in such a way that it's a threat to those who don't want anything to do with it. Jesus told you and I to be salt and light, both. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said you're gonna gonna be the salt of the earth and you're not gonna be a light that's put under a bushel, you're gonna be a light that everybody can see. He said we're both salt and light. Well, salt was used in the first century as a preserving agent. We we know that, they didn't have refrigerators, right? They used salt to preserve meat but salt also stings when it's pushed into tender areas. And that's the truth of the gospel. That's why Jesus used that analogy. We're not just a preserving agent that Jesus said, we're gonna get out there and be the salt of the earth, but we also will be bringing a message that stings. He also said, we're gonna be the light. The light means you're shining light into dark places, things that are done under the cover of darkness. That's precisely what's happening here. The extent and the scope of the spread of Christianity is such a threat that by the time you get to verse 26, you understand what he's talking about. He says this isn't only in Ephesus. This is in all of Asia where they're saying our gods are no gods at all. Go with me to verse 26. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. So there's the threat. He presents it straightforward. This Paul is leading people astray. You see it with a sneer in his face, right? Because he understands this is threatening him. Literally in the Greek language, he says, Paul is seducing the people. As people take the Bible seriously, As people hear the message of the cross, Demetrius' sales are plummeting and is causing him no small amount of grief. But he knows the money argument alone will not work. So Demetrius is a pretty smart guy. He doesn't just go after the money argument, he's saying, Paul's challenging our money, but then he goes in to say, Paul's challenging our religion and our patriotism, and if you bring that into the public arena, you're gonna get a reaction. Go to the next verse, 27. Not only is there danger that this trade of our fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. This guy is a skilled manipulator of emotions, right? Okay, he really knows how to talk to people. In all fairness to Demetrius, his argument is not without foundation. Does the Bible speak clearly against idolatry? Yeah, absolutely. Does the Bible speak clearly against hanging on to things from our old life, the baggage, and dragging it with us as something that's offensive to God? Yeah, absolutely. God says don't, don't hang on to those things. And when you drill down even deeper, you find the teachings of Jesus are a genuine threat to the way of life that these people in Ephesus are participating in. But do not miss the real point of the opposition that's going on here. The real point of the opposition is not this guy's faithfulness to Diana, it's his wallet. So Demetrius is confessing something here. He doesn't mean to, but he's confessing something to you as Christ followers. He's confessing that the gospel changes people, that the gospel is affecting a change. What people living in Ephesus value has shifted. They no longer value what they used to value. They've surrendered that to Jesus, and they've moved on to what he called them to do. I want you to understand a major factor in the success of the gospel is a surrendered church and I mean corporately and individually. I just wanna remind you what we looked at last week if you happen to be here. If you weren't, I'll catch up on it real quickly, but we looked at the activity of the Holy Spirit and how you can identify the activity of the Holy Spirit in your life. Well, the Holy Spirit was moving in such power through Ephesus, through the church, that even those who had believed found themselves confessing their secret sins Look with me up on the screen at an example of this from chapter 19, just let your eyes drift up to verse 18. Many also, notice, of those who had believed, that means of the church, church, those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. People who said that they followed Jesus had found themselves caught up in practices of their old life. They hadn't fully surrendered. They hadn't really put it all on the altar and said, it's all yours, God. I'm walking away from that past. But we see the result of their surrendering because of the surrendering of the baggage of the old life. The church in Ephesus becomes clean. And look what verse 20 says as a result of that. It says this, the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. That's where we left off at last week. The church had surrendered and given it all up and said, I'm not gonna hang on to this anymore. I'm gonna move on to these new things that you've called me to. Now understand the Ephesian believers are not lobbying politicians. They're not picketing silversmith shops, right? What they're doing is they're living out the message. They're living out exactly what Jesus called them to do. They're allowing the power of their transformed life to push out all the old ways, all the things that Satan would have been tying them down with. Now on the opposite side of the spectrum, what we have is Demetrius. And Demetrius is so successful at what he's saying, he's whipped this crowd into a frenzy and the people pour into the streets. Go with me to verse 28. It says this, when they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So this crowd quickly forms and and they begin this chant. Go with me to verse 29. The city was filled with the confusion and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. So they're surging out onto Main Street. Now myself, I've never been to Ephesus, haven't seen it, but I understand what there is is a very large hill that begins the Arcadian Way. It's a very broad boulevard and it, it leads people, ushers them literally down to the amphitheater. And This amphitheater is huge. This is where they're all headed. Think of the Breslin Center here in Lansing at at, at MSU and then double it in size, all right? It has the capacity to seat about 25 to 30,000 people. That's where they're headed as a mass of people and they're gonna overflow the banks of this theater, an open air amphitheater. Now, we've talked about what a surrendered life begins to look like. Do, Do you believe this morning as you sit here and you've studied the life of Paul over these many months, do you believe that Paul has a surrendered life yes or no yeah okay i I would agree with you He, he looks like a guy who is totally denied himself and understands what it means to pick up the cross i don't know if you've ever seen paul this surrendered go with me to the next verse verse 30. and when paul wanted to go into the assembly the disciples would not let him verse 31 Also, some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. See, Paul has heard what's happening. He's heard that some of his friends have been dragged into the theater. He wants to go in. Can you say courage off the charts? This mob rule has taken over, and Paul wants to walk right into the middle of it. What's going on? Well, one, I think he wants to rescue his friends. Two, there's a chance to present and defend the cause of Christ, And when you're a preacher like Paul, the opportunity to walk into an amphitheater with 30,000 people and present the gospel message to the masses, man, I can understand why Paul's showing up. But you have to also appreciate that he's put his life on the line. His life is threatened by wanting to go through the doors into the amphitheater. So we're told in verse 30, the disciples will not let him in. Verse 31, the Asiarchs repeatedly urged him not to go. Oh, who is that? That's nobility of asia minor there there was the families of great prominence and great wealth that's the asiarchs they're they're a ruling class family that they have to repeatedly urge paul not to go in these individuals of prominence and influence tells you how determined he is to get through the door that these individuals of prominence are willing to give him advice in such an explosive situation tells you also that they don't think Paul's doing anything wrong. They're friends of his. They want to protect him. So Paul's not done anything wrong. These are trumped up charges. Go to the next verse, verse 32. So then some were shouting one thing and some another for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Verse 33, some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander. Since the Jews had put him forward and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Think that's an intimidating environment? I would absolutely not want to walk into that environment. I don't know about you. It looks incredibly intimidating. First, they're full of confusion. They don't even know why they're there. But when they recognize Alexander and that he's a Jew, they begin with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians and it goes on for two hours why are they pushing Alexander up onto the stage well this is the deal in Ephesus they didn't know the difference between Christians and Jews those people they don't worship the shrines we do they worship a god they can't see and those people they believe in a god not only that you can't see but that god says don't worship idols well, they saw no difference between Jews and Christians. So the Jews are trying to make sure they're distancing themselves from the Christians because they recognize this can turn into a massacre. They're trying to disentangle themselves from the Christians because for the Ephesians, there's no difference. So when they recognize this Jew in the States, they start saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and they're yelling for two hours, completely out of control until the city's mayor steps up onto the platform. Go with me to the next big chunk verse 35 after quieting the crowd the town clerk said men of ephesus what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the ephesians is the guardian of the temple of the great artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven they believe in a a meteorite that fell right that was part of the image of artemis That's, that's what he's talking about there so since the verse 36 so since these are undeniable facts you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So you got the mayor on platform, and he's the leading dignitary of Ephesus, and he knows that Rome is going to hold him responsible. If things go south, it's on him. So he reminds them of the common knowledge throughout the world. Ephesus is the guardian of the temple. Ephesus is gonna contain this image which fell from heaven. These Christians cannot do anything to affect our goddess. Artemis' power is undeniable. Artemis' reputation is secure. He's really, really sincere, right? Really, really sincere, sincerely wrong. It's, it's possible to really believe something and be completely wrong about it, And that's what you see here. He's incredibly wrong. Does anyone follow Artemis or Diana today? Yet billions follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So he's not right. These Christians can do damage. The gospel is advancing. So watch his closing argument. Last couple verses for the story, verse 38. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly for indeed we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events since there is no real cause for it and in this connection we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he mis- dismissed the assembly. You may go through an entire story like that in Acts chapter 19 and wonder, man, what's the application to me? How is this gonna be pulled out to my life? The first thing I want you to notice is that when the gospel is presented in power, it will be opposed, you can expect it. When the gospel is presented in truth, it's going to have pushback because the gospel is always controversial because it stands in disagreement with popular culture and it stands in disagreement with political agendas. It does, it's the truth, so it's gonna hit opposition. So do you notice as you work through this, Paul is not attracting any opposition by staging anti-idolatry rallies. He's not staging rallies whatsoever. All he's done is this. He's unleashed the truth of the Bible. He's unleashed the truth to a lost city. And as more and more people surrender to Jesus, there's less and less customers and they can't do anything about it. They can't change the movement of the Holy Spirit. So to end this, let me take you back to the very beginning of the riot. You've got Artemis being defended by Demetrius, who is the silversmith, and he's talking to his conglomeration of silversmiths. You notice that they're not shouting, great is our silver business, right? Because they know that's not going to play with the crowd. So they're not going to use the issue of their silver business. They're going to use the issue of religion. They're going to use the issue of their patriotism because the idol is never the real idol. The idol in their life is not the real idol, they're just using that as a cover. The real idol is that they refuse to have any life change. They've got Paul in their city, greatest evangelist I've ever seen in the Bible, who has totally denied himself, sold out for Jesus, preaching to the masses, and they don't want it. They don't want anything to do with the life change because their idol is their pocketbook. Now, in 2015, it is so easy today to stand in amazement at the extreme blindness of these Ephesians. We look at this and we would say, who's gonna hold on to something so worthless as an idol? But today, I'm here to tell you, many, and I've been there, I can totally identify with this, many can give no better explanation why we hold on to the things from our past why we hold on to the baggage, why we keep things as a pet that God has said, I want you to surrender that. I want you to put that in your past. Put it behind you. Deny yourself, give it up to me. So I'm gonna ask you to do a little heart check this morning and let God do surgery on you throughout the week. Maybe God needs to do some heart surgery on you you for some issues. Are there some relationship things that you're holding on to? God's pushing on you to ask you to surrender it? Maybe there's an employment situation? Uh, Health, financial, I don't don't know. I'm sure the image immediately popped into your mind. You, You know the categories, you know the subject, you know intimately your own life. God knows that. So I'm gonna challenge you. Let God do some surgery on you this week about those attachments that you're holding so dear. What might your God be showing you that you're holding on to, that you haven't yet surrendered to him, that's keeping you from picking up that cross and following him? Is there something that you haven't really given over? We're gonna sing an old, old song in just a minute. It was written in 1896. It's called I Surrender All. And it's a song that checks my heart every single time because I have to ask myself, have I? Have I really surrendered all? Am I as willing as Paul was to be so bold to rush into an amphitheater of an angry mob? I have to do a reality check on myself when I read these stories. Maybe no one has ever asked you to surrender before. Maybe your understanding of following Jesus was just that. Hey, I just signed on the dotted line. Yes, I believe in Jesus. And maybe you walked an aisle at one time and you never again thought about what it means to surrender to him. But if he's Lord over your life, you've got to really do a heart check and say, have I given up the things that he's asked me to give up? And here's where you start. And it starts in the same place for every single person. We start in that place where we recognize the first thing we've gotta give up is this deceitful thought and this very pretentious thought that we bring anything to the table whatsoever. It's a hard thing to hear, isn't it? But it's a reality. We don't. God takes us as we are, not because of our righteousness. Our righteousness is as filthy rags, the scriptures say, So we we gotta get rid of that first very deceitful thought that we're bringing anything to the table. Because when we put real solid sin on the altar, you know what God gives you in exchange for your really solid sin? He gives you really solid righteousness. That's a fair trade, isn't it? That's what your God does. So if you are hesitating with that surrender issue, recognize you might have to start first with the heart. And that requires humility. And once you've done that, man, the floodgates will open because the Holy Spirit will show you all kinds of things that you need to surrender, to put yourself in the place where you're ready to pick up the cross and follow Jesus. The song you're about to sing was written by a man who was really struggling with a career choice. Just hear this story out before you sing. 1896, he's a very well-known musician. Vocal recording, not in the sense that we would think of somebody making a recording, but people wanted to pay money to hear him come to concert halls. And somebody challenged him and said, what if you took that talent and used it for the kingdom of Jesus? And there was pushback back and forth. He struggled with it for five years. Do I really give that up, my, my career aspirations, in order to become what they're telling me to do for the kingdom? Well, the short of the story is in 1896, he wrote this song, I Surrender All, because he gave up everything in order to follow Jesus. Uh, here's fast forward the rest of the story. 30 years later, he's a man in his 60s, and he finds himself as a professor at Florida Bible Institute, and he's teaching young students about what it means to travel the world as an evangelist because he's been very successful at it by that point in time. Sitting in the front row of his class is a young man, young man by the name of Billy Graham who needed someone to build into his life about what it means to surrender all and to travel the world as an evangelist. And God used that man to speak into another man's life. When, when we deny Jesus the opportunity to take everything from us and we surrender, when we deny him that opportunity, we don't know what we're denying ourselves down the road how he might use us. Uh, that's the reason for bringing out this text this morning, how God might be pushing on your heart right now, how he might be shaking you, shaping you more into the image of Christ. So I, I want to pray with you to close, but the team's going to come up here, and I, I, I challenge you to treat this song as a song of sacrifice back to God. Let's pray together. Father, I recognize that what we're about to do is not easy and it goes far beyond um, human ability. It requires the presence of the Holy Spirit to even recognize these areas in our life where we're holding back from you. It just doesn't come easy to us. We, We hold on to things, God, and you know that about us. we're holding on to things that you've told us to let go. Some things that are even sinful. Things that we think no one else knows about. But you know. You know what we've reserved as our own little pet items. Father, I pray for every one of my brothers and sisters in Christ that fill this auditorium. hear the cry of our heart in this moment. And God, I ask that in the midst of hearing that cry, that you would help us to push past the emotion into the world of reality, that this would be something that we would carry with us as a desire tomorrow and Tuesday and and Thursday and, and next Saturday. Father, please, I pray for this, that you would keep it from evaporating from our mind, that this is a real turning point for us god that we would see a metropolitan area like lansing be changed because of the surrender of this church because of the heart desire to walk with jesus as those who have denied themselves god make that true of us it's in jesus name we bring this before you and all god's people said amen